He told me that his sister had been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder and she, you know, would call them, but he and his family just didn't get it because she seemed, she seemed fine, you know, invisible illness, didn't, they didn't get it. But that hearing me talk helped him understand what's going on underneath that. And he said he was going to go home and call his sister. And so it's, it's those people who are so open to change that inspire me to keep going and keep teaching because it makes a difference. Welcome everyone to another episode of Act and Perspective Podcast. I'm your host, Hugh Seminick. Today we're sitting down with Katie Sanford, a mental health advocate who has created her own blog chronicling her life's journey with serious mental illness. Now, Katie was diagnosed early on with obsessive compulsive disorder and depression that followed her as she grew up, but her symptoms began to evolve in her junior year of high school where she began seeing and hearing things not there. And in August 2008, she was first diagnosed with depressive type schizoaffective disorder. Now, despite these challenges, Katie went on to graduate from Northwestern University in Illinois and has spent three years as a research assistant studying schizophrenia. In addition to working as legal assistant, she also works with the Chicago chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, speaking for crisis intervention training and mental health awareness trainings. Her blog, entitled Not Like the Others, is well worth reading and can be found at katiesanford.net. In it, she relates her personal experiences to break down stigma and give people a better understanding of serious mental illness. Her life's journey has also been published in the August 13th, 2020 issue of Women's Health Magazine. Now, later in this episode, we'll also meet her boyfriend, James, who supports Katie in many ways in both advocacy and daily life. Please help welcome Ms. Katie Sanford. I have really kind of struggled with mental illnesses for quite a while. Um, the mm-hmm. OCD started when I was very young, probably five or six, maybe. Um, and uh, that's when the depression started as well. And it was all sort of related to a sense of control. Um, my parents got divorced when I was young and I never felt, you know, I never felt like it was my fault. I never had fantasies of them getting back together. I, I understood that, but what was difficult for me was not knowing what was happening. I didn't fully understand it. You know, my mom moved several times. And so that feeling of not knowing what's gonna you know, happen next or what's happening really um, was really tough on me. And so that was how the OCD was how I controlled my world. Like if I you know, did this ritual, if I touched a wall four times, then you know, the world's not going to explode. Um, but I didn't really recognize it as mental illness. Um, even, I mean, when I was in high school and dealing with you know, some very severe depression, I would tell myself, you know, this isn't depression, you know, this is, you know, don't bother anybody with all of this, you know, you're, you're fine, just keep going. Um, 
so it wasn't until the schizoaffective diagnosis that I um, ever, you know, sought help because I didn't, I just didn't recognize it as anything, honestly, that could be fixed. I just thought it was how I was. Did other people recognize it outside of you? I think um, people recognize the depression, but I'm not sure as much about the OCD because I think when you know when you're a kid you can kind of write some of that stuff off as just being a quirk or something like that um and then when I got older we just kind of joked about it um you know how my friends you know we like to make cupcakes a lot in high school and um so you know I'd ask them to stir my friends to stir the pot the other direction to kind of even it out because that was one of my big um sort of obsessions and rituals were around evenness and, you know, we just laugh about it. We never really thought anything clinical kind of was involved. Mm-hmm. What really led to it was that I couldn't hide it anymore. I had always, um, I don't know if prided myself on it is the right word, but I, I had kept all of it inside. Like, you know, people didn't realize how severe the depression was and, and all of that um, mm-hmm. because I didn't feel like, like I didn't want people to think there was something wrong with me, kind of, you know, if they, mm-hmm. if they realized just how bad it was. Um, and I also felt like people wouldn't care or they'd abandon me and things like that. Um, but in the summer of uh, 2008, um, my, well, let me backtrack a little bit. In February, my mom had a cardiac event and I was the only one home. My brother was in college. My mom hadn't you know, remarried or anything. Um, and so I took care of her. I'm the one who you know, took her to the hospital. I took care of things around the house until she could get back. And um, she was laid up for a few months. And so it was kind of like, I took all of this burden onto me, even when she, you know, I wasn't doing everything necessarily. I still had this feeling of like everything, you know, was really riding on me and I had to keep everything together. And so when she went back to work full time, um, it was this kind of, instead of it feeling like a relief necessarily, it felt like I could finally give in to it and, you know, kind of crumble under the weight rather than feeling like, oh, this is all better. Um, and so that's when I started getting different symptoms of the depression. I had always had very classic symptoms, you know, feeling suicidal, hurting myself, feeling hopeless and worthless and like nobody cared about me. But this time the symptoms were, um, were very different. I didn't feel that I wasn't hurting myself. I wasn't suicidal. Um, and I, I didn't feel worthless or hopeless, but I just felt nothing. I mean, absolutely like nothing mattered. Nothing was worthwhile. I was just existing. But what was really tough was that I kind of stopped sleeping, Um, not by choice, but I was sleeping maybe two hours a night. I was having trouble, you know, being interested in food and eating. Um, And it just became so difficult for me to function. I had always been able to function, like you said, highly with OCD and with, uh, you know, the depression, I could Mm. pretend it wasn't there and keep up with everybody else. But now it was, you know, a battle to go to my job or see a friend. Mm. And I realized that I wasn't going to be able to hide it anymore. And that was actually what really led me to 
you know, seeking help. And I asked my mom if I could see a therapist and mm. um, kind of went from there. What was your family dynamic at that time? The family dynamic was pretty good. My parents' divorce was amicable. So there was never tension or anything like that. So I got very lucky growing up in an environment like that. When, you did, know, you, when my, did your parents divorce? I think I was four at the time. Okay. All right. Yeah. So it, it had been, you know, I was used to it. It's how I grew up, you know, splitting time between two households. And so it wasn't um, odd for me and it wasn't, you know, stressful or anything because it was just what I had always, um, what I had always known, really. Um, so, so family wise, you know, I had my typical high school struggles with my parents at times where, you know, you think they're overbearing or things like that. But I think every kid kind of goes through that at some point. Um, so, but at the time, everything was pretty, pretty good, pretty average, pretty, you know, run of the mill for us. Um, but um, in terms of where like the mental health history um, on my dad's side of the family, there's not really as much. Um, my mom's side of the family has a little bit more of a history of mental health issues. And that's where um, uh, there is a lot of obsessive compulsive disorder um, in my family. My grandmother had it. And um, so it's something that wasn't abnormal, I guess. Um, and I don't know if that's why it kind of flew under the radar with me because it wasn't, you know, out of the ordinary for mm -hmm. our family. Um, and I think depression runs pretty strongly in mm -hmm. families as well. Um, but the schizoaffective disorder um, has, in general, it's not quite as um, genetically passed on, um, just as an illness, but there is a, a little bit of a history there. My uncle has schizophrenia um, as well. Before you were diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder in August of 2008, can you describe a little bit more about your symptoms, your depressive symptoms? Yeah, so the first time I saw a therapist was in 2008. I believe I started in um, July and um, it was, I couldn't, when the depression changed like that and became so um, debilitating, um, I, I couldn't ignore it anymore. I couldn't pretend that it was quirks and things. I couldn't try and convince myself that this was just me being dramatic. Mm -hmm. um, and just because it, 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 it was, I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't function and I am very much an overachiever. So this idea that I couldn't compete as much, that I couldn't be at the highest level um, was a motivator for me to, to get this sort of looked at. And while I was in therapy, um, they got me started on antidepressant and um, something to help me sleep and something for anxiety as needed. Um, and so I got very lucky in that because I was already in treatment when my symptoms started to change. And when, you know, the first time that I heard something um, was frightening, but I felt like there, there was help because I had 
a psychiatrist I trusted and, you know, that support. And so, um, yeah, there was one day where I was just um, at home getting ready for the day in my bedroom. And from the back corner of the room, I heard a snicker, like someone, like a man laughing at me very briefly, but it was crystal clear. And I, you know, didn't have TV on, I didn't have music on and I was home alone. So I was terrified. And it was again, that motivator of, I need to be able to function in order to, you know, achieve my goals and things. And so that was another reason that, you know, I called my doctor right away. And so as more things came up, more sounds, I would hear footsteps in the hallway, um, you know, things like that. We just kept adjusting the medication and talking about it in therapy. Um, so it was very, I was very lucky. Um, how soon would you say that you started seeing a difference with the medication and therapy? Yeah. Um, I would say it took several months, if not close to a year to really recognize, um, my level of stability. I never really got rid of the symptoms altogether. There was always something, especially disorganized type symptoms of just mm -hmm. my thoughts being mixed up or, you know, feeling like they're flying around my head, like paper planes or not being there at all and making kind of weird associations. So things like that were, were always there with the hallucinations lessened. But I think part of why I didn't see, um, really see progress sooner was because of the stigma and the shame. I yeah. didn't have, well, I didn't tell a lot of people when I was first diagnosed. When I left California for college, 15 people, maybe, maybe 15 people knew, and that includes my doctors. Um, so I didn't face a lot of stigma from other people right away, but I faced a lot of stigma for myself. You know, nobody else told me that I was worthless and no one would love me. And, you know, I would never amount to anything, but I told myself that all the time. There is so much shame associated with mental illness. And for me, I, I really felt it, especially with the schizoaffective disorder, because I felt like, you know, how could anyone understand? I barely understood what I was going through. So I think that really held me back in treatment because I was just so hard on myself and afraid of what other people, you know, would think that I really, I felt hopeless. I felt like it wouldn't get better. And so instead of focusing on how I could improve it, I focused on how I could hide it. There was a lot of the shoulds. I should be able to control this. I should be able to keep up in school despite this. I should be able, you know, to function like anybody else. That was a really big one for me was I felt like, you know, it didn't matter that I had this very serious illness and that I was still learning how to, you know, handle it and learning how to treat it properly. I felt like I should still be at that same level that I had been at. I should still be top of the class. I should still, you know, school should still be easy. Um, but there was also quite a bit of feeling like just fear, a major fear of abandonment. I thought that everyone was going to leave me and I really, I really needed people. I remember telling my friends, my closest friends, um, I, I had been diagnosed for probably a couple of weeks and I 
was terrified. We were over at one of their houses and, you know, my heart's beating out of my chest. And I said, I remember I said, I need to tell you guys something, but please don't freak out. And I just thought for sure that they would look down on me, that they would leave me, that they would think I was some kind of, you know, dangerous person because of this. And it's not, you know, I, not because I think poorly of them or because, you know, they treat other people that way. It was just the thoughts that I projected because I was so afraid of the stereotype. I was afraid of becoming a stereotype as well of that, you know, dangerous quote unquote person, which, you know, all of that isn't true, but right. I was really afraid of what this kind of meant for my future. And so yeah. I projected all of these ideas onto other people and my friends were incredibly supportive um but i just was so afraid that these people you know who are like family to me are gonna just disappear out of my life because yeah, of this yeah. yeah when that happened and you you told your friends they embraced it they accepted you did you find that that was a pivotal point for you um I think it was, I don't think I saw it as a pivotal point at the time. Mm -hmm. um, it was just a huge relief and there were still lingering thoughts of, you know, what if they change their minds or, you know, they mm -hmm. see symptoms in me and then freak out. Um, but I think it really was. A, a, that was the first time that I felt accepted by people who I wasn't, you know, sure people who mattered to me because my parents very accepting, you know, my mom with her family history of mental illness, that wasn't, you know, a big issue for her. And my dad, even though he didn't know necessarily how to handle it, he was always supportive in there. And my brother was supportive and I had my doctors and all of that. So telling my friends was really the first time that I told someone when I was questioning what their response would be. Um, so I think even though I didn't recognize it as a major point, um, at the time, definitely looking back, it was a, a big deal, um, to really face that fear for the first time. And that fear didn't go away for quite a while. I mean, I still get nervous about telling people sometimes, um, because there is so much stigma. I don't feel as much that, um, as like, I don't believe as much that I'm, you know, worthless or never going to amount to anything because of this, but I do still fear that other people will think that sometimes. And that was a big, a big issue in college for me because I, you know, packed up my stuff a year after my diagnosis, when I was finally starting to get, you know, more stable and um, flew halfway across the country and had to build a support system from scratch. I didn't, I didn't know anybody. And um, that was where that thinking started to change a little bit because the more people I told and the more people who were mostly just surprised that um, you know, someone with schizoaffective disorder or schizophrenia could be you know, at, um, I went to Northwestern University and so you know, very competitive and everything. And I think a lot of people didn't realize that someone with a psychotic disorder can, you know, live a life mm -hmm. like that, that they can live, you know, outside of 
a hospital or, you know, assisted living facility or with their parents kind of, there's just this idea that they're, you know, everyone is severely disabled if they have it. And there are some who are, um, but it's not, not true for everybody. And so as I realized that all these people were more surprised and interested and wanted to learn more, Mm -hmm. um, I became a lot more comfortable with it. Um, and then in my junior year of college, I, um, spoke about it publicly for the first time. Um, I got involved with a group called NU Active Minds, which was the Northwestern chapter of the national organization, Active Minds. And I just felt like I needed to get this off of my chest. I needed to show people that this was possible. And part of that was for myself. When I got to Northwestern, I, I lived everywhere. I wanted a role model. I wanted a story of someone who entered Northwestern with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, or, you know, something like that involving psychosis and graduated on time. And I couldn't find anyone. I, you know, asked professors and all of that. And, you know, it's very possible that there was someone who had done that, but they weren't, you know, open about it. And so I felt very much like I had to make it up for myself. And so talking about what I'd been through and proving, you know, I'm here at Northwestern doing this. And I struggled a lot. I had entered on a full ride scholarship and lost it after the first year because of academic um, issues. I couldn't deal with the cognitive issues. So to be able to stand up there and say like, look, I made it. I, you know, I did it was a really really pivotal point for me. Yeah, I imagine, you know, and it got me thinking when you first entered Northwestern University, um, you flew way across the country, you didn't know anybody. Uh, What made you then decide to start telling people and start opening up? I think, I think, a lot of it actually was a way for me to accept myself with it. Mm. If I could be my, it was always kind of like, I felt like I had to hide who I truly was, even though, you know, mental illness doesn't change who you are fundamentally as a person. Um, But I felt very on edge, kind of walking on eggshells, feeling like I had to hide all of these symptoms, even though, you know, they weren't that visible at all. But I just worried incessantly about someone finding out, you know, that I had this. And so telling people was a way of taking control of that too, of feeling like I'm in control of this information, who knows, and all of that. Um, But the more people I told and got that acceptance and understanding and people just kind of not caring at all, the, the more secure I felt with it myself. So, um, it was a lot about educating others as well. I wanted people to understand that, you know, this was possible and people with psychotic disorders can do this. Um, but there was definitely a, a, a fair amount of it that was about me accepting myself with this disorder. Yeah. And can you talk a, a, a bit the actual symptoms that you were experiencing when you first entered um, the university? Sure. Um, when I first entered Northwestern, um, I wasn't having as many hallucinations or things like that. That was um, primarily under control through the medication, but I felt 
just all over the place. I felt like nothing was, I was really just floundering, kind of drowning a little bit in, you know, this new social situation of being surrounded by all these people who I don't know and feeling like I have to impress people, feeling competitive about grades and things like that. Um, and so I wasn't, um, there was some OCD symptoms, some rituals, um, basic things, but a lot of obsession, quite a bit of just worrying about everything and feeling like I had to worry about it. Like if I didn't worry enough about something, then I wasn't paying enough attention, kind of. Um, and there was definitely some depression in there. Um, but when my sophomore year rolled around, I had um, my first episode of psychosis since my original diagnosis. And it started with um, these shadow people. Um, it's kind of how I refer to them. They're, it's like an outline of a human form. It's a little bit fuzzy. It's not too detailed. Mm -hmm. And they're just, it's just all black and kind of fuzzy. So I would see them following me across campus. Um, I had seen them a little bit during my very, like my initial episode when I was diagnosed, I would see them peering in my windows um, and, you know, peering around doors and stuff like that in my bedroom. But it was at Northwestern that it really became um, a major and a recurring hallucination for me. I would see them running across campus, following me, kind of watching everything that I was doing. Um, and um, that was also when, you know, I would hear them walking behind me. I could hear the footsteps that were, you know, out of sync with my own and hear the rustle of clothes and you turn around and no one's there. Um, so that was one of the biggest ones um, that I experienced in that particular episode. Um, and then another thing would be hearing music a lot. Um, I had my fair share of frightening hallucinations like the shadow people, um, you know, hearing footsteps walking around, things like that. But there were some that weren't as terrifying. Like I would hear music just coming from nowhere. Um, it was more annoying than anything else because it was always like just faint enough that I couldn't tell what song it was or if it was even what I would recognize. Um, and it was all sorts of genres and things. It wasn't limited to, to anything. Um, so there were some hallucinations like that that weren't threatening, but, you know, kind of obnoxious <laughs> sometimes uh -huh. getting in the way. Um, but I also have a recurring hallucination that is very comforting and that is the cat um and the first time i saw the cat well let me backtrack um during my initial um episode and all of that before we got to the schizoaffective diagnosis everything was kind of overwhelming um i was just so overwhelmed by all the doctor's visits and you know therapy and medication changes and so I was over at a house where I was pet sitting and I'm, you know, lying on the couch, watching TV with the dogs. And I had my arm hanging off the edge of the couch and I felt a cat sniff the back of my hand, you know, the breath and the whiskers just very lightly. And I didn't think about it. And I, you know, reached out to pet it and it pulled back and we went back and forth a couple of times before I remembered that they don't have a cat. And so I panicked and I called my doctor and then um, probably within a few days, 
I was crawling under a desk at home to turn off a power strip and there she was. And she's probably two, two to three foot tall cat, fluffy gray with pale eyes. And she would just blink slowly at me. And she made me feel like everything was going to be okay. I mm. then, you know, later panicked because I'm looking at this cat that doesn't exist. Um, but she appeared again in that episode of my sophomore year at the end of things. And I got that same feeling of like, everything's going to be okay after all. Mm. Um, so it's really, when it comes to the hallucinations and delusions too, um, there is a, a big spectrum kind of there everything's not necessarily frightening um but that also doesn't necessarily make it okay i mean obviously i'm still having symptoms and this is a problem um but but that was something that i learned about schizophrenia too because i thought everything mm. was voices and threatening people and you know all of that so i really learned a lot about it from living with it <laughs> with the hallucinations um something that i think a lot of people don't know, and I actually questioned it myself for a long time, is that they don't always look as real and solid as um, as everything else in this, uh, you know, in your world. And so they can be kind of hazy and almost a little bit ghost-like. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, sometimes they do, the shadow people are very real to me. They look very solid. Um, but, you know, sometimes the cat is a little hazy, sometimes other people with more detail than the shadow people are a little hazy to me. Um, but so there's, um, there's this thing called insight where you can recognize that something is a symptom, even as you're experiencing it. And that's something that I've been lucky to maintain for um, the duration of um, my disease so far. Um, and so I think it's confusing for a lot of people that I can recognize it as a hallucination, even if it is um, something that's more solid, you can kind of figure it out sometimes based off of like, does this make sense to be in this situation? You know, if there's music coming from the sky, does it, you know, it, it doesn't happen. Uh -huh. um, or there was one time where I was in college and, you know, I got into bed and um, my boyfriend at the time was there too. And I look up and there's this man in an overcoat and a hat just standing on the end of the bed, glaring down at me. And so obviously, you know, that's, that's not yeah. real. Um, but I think what's confusing to people is why you can't, why it still affects you. And so the way it's worked, at least with me with insight is that even though I can say, this isn't real, there's still that emotional response. There's this part right. of your brain that is telling you, no, this is real. Yeah. And it's difficult to get rid of that at this point in time with things like the music, when I hear that, you know, I can recognize it and just sort of ignore it. But um, it took a while to kind of get there. It still triggered me, um, but especially the frightening hallucinations. Um, you just still get that, that emotional response that you know direct sure. kind of thing and um it, it's confusing with delusions too one of my main delusions that I had in college during my senior year when I had another episode in the shadow people were just everywhere um there was a day where I was walking back from probably some club meeting because it was at night um, and I was walking across campus and there's a uh, part of Lake Michigan kind of feeds into the campus a little bit. 
And so I was walking past it and it was winter. So they have this, you know, orange plastic kind of construction style fence up and the fence was down in one area around the pond. And so I started walking towards it. Like I was in some kind of trance and it wasn't until I got into the bushes really that it was like a spell broke. And I was just terrified because I was, you know, fully dressed in a coat in the middle of December in Chicago about to walk into the lake. And I didn't know why, I mean, was I going to, you know, swim? Was I going to drown myself? Was I just going to stand there? And so that was when I had this really strong delusion that this was the shadow people and that they were scientists and they were making things happen and observing my response. Um, And so there was this part of me that said, this is a delusion. This is not real. You know, Mm -hmm. that's not, these shadow people aren't real. That's not a thing. You know, no one's experimenting on you or observing you but I still had that emotional response of this is real. Mm -hmm. And that's a um, delusion that has been a little bit hard to shake when it comes to the shadow people. Mm -hmm. Um, They they do still pop up sometimes. Just the other day I saw um, one of them kind of peering around the door in this room actually. And I was talking to my psychiatrist and saying, you know, saying, well, what are they, are they doing? And it's still feel like they're observing me. Um, not so much for a science experiment, but there's just that little bit of it that sort of clung on where I, I created the reason that I was seeing these people. Um, but yeah, it's kind of confusing to <laughs> explain yeah. how you can believe something and recognize that it's not real at the same time. It is a little bit easier now. Um, I've always been able to kind of compartmentalize it and set it aside to some degree. Um, But I think where it gets trickier is um, with stress. Um, Stress is a big cause of symptoms for me in general, but especially if I'm emotional, it becomes more difficult to set it aside and say, this isn't real and put it over here and carry on with your day. Um, It it gets uh, a little bit more difficult to, to separate, not necessarily separate from, you know, reality and symptoms, but to separate my emotions from it um, and mm-hmm. not have that, you know, being able to control that triggered response um, and kind of hide what I'm feeling and experiencing. And going back to that, it was, I think your junior year in Northwestern, you decided to speak publicly about this for the first time. Can you describe that experience? Absolutely. Um, It was terrifying. I remember um, they did, the club put on um, a panel with the idea of breaking down the stigma. So they had four students living with mental health conditions who were speaking at this event. And I remember thinking it was so much bigger than I had been expecting. There was, you know, we filled this classroom, probably at least 50 people. Um, and I remember standing at the front of the room thinking, you know, what am I doing? <laughs> Are all of these people going to, um, you know, be afraid of me now? It was still just that whole stigma of are people going to be afraid of me and think that I'm less of a person or, you know, anything like that. 
but I really felt like I needed to do that. I needed to change these people's minds about what it was really like. And I remember being very nervous too, because we had initially agreed that I would go last. And then the presenter, you know, came and opened up and everything and introduced everybody and then had me go first. And I remember just thinking, no, that's not what was supposed to happen. But, um, but I, I did it and I got almost excited as I was talking about it because these people, you know, weren't terrified. They weren't running away. They weren't kicking me off of, you know, the stage and all of that. Um, and so it felt good to, to get it out there and be done with it and feel like, okay, maybe I've changed one person's mind. You know, that's, that's all that matters. If I can change one person's mind about what, you know, schizoaffective disorder and other psychotic disorders are really like, then I've accomplished a goal. And I think it was a little bit easier too, because um, it was one of those situations where, you know, you may never see these people again. This is, Northwestern is not a really big school, but I went to a very small high school. Um, I think there were less than a thousand kids in the entire school. So it was a situation where if one person, you know, you told one person and they told someone else, everybody right. would find out. And so this was, um, you know, a situation where I probably would never see half of these people again, or maybe in passing, but why would they remember me? So I think that made it a lot easier. Okay. Um, but after that, like the next couple of days, I would have people stop me and tell me how, you know, how they thought I was really brave and courageous and all of that, or that I really changed their mind. And that just flipped a switch for me um, because I didn't really, I never really felt brave doing it. I felt like it was a need. I needed to teach people and I needed to accept myself. Um, and so, but to hear that, to hear that people were open to it and listening and, and that I made an impact was huge. And after that, I became much more um, involved. I became co-president of that club and helped plan events and host events. And, you know, people wanted interviews with me and things like that. And it was just great to know that people cared and would listen. I still had fear, um, but I think what made it a little easier was all of those individual people that I told throughout my college career up until that point, you know, and needing to tell someone because they're going to see me taking, you know, a handful of medication or, or I have to explain that, you know, I can't stay out late because I take this medication and it knocks me out or having to explain to teachers, you know, why I needed accommodations, um, which I did get through the disability office. Um, but, you know, if I needed something else and the more people who I liked the surprise, I liked people, you know, changing their mind in an instant of, you know, oh, wait a second, that's possible. Um, and so it became a little bit like a game for me um, at times of letting someone get to know me and then, you know, dropping, oh, by the way, I have schizoaffective disorder and kind of watch their whole world change. So I think telling people one at a time really helped build my confidence a little bit. Um, but I think also I felt like I had nothing to lose, really, um, because, you know, I wouldn't see a lot of these people anymore, or, you know, I, I had just been so afraid of people finding out that this was 
a way for me to kind of get rid of that. And that's something that I actually did within the last few years online too. It, you know, it had always been a secret. I wanted to keep this from my pe the people who I went to high school with. I didn't want them to change their whole idea of who I was simply because of a diagnosis. Yeah. Um, and so it was very, like, I felt like I couldn't talk about my advocacy on Facebook or, you know, things like that, because what if someone found out and it changed their view of me? And so a few years ago, um, during Mental Health Awareness Week, I think, I put it out there. I posted, you know, this long little bit about my story. Um, and there was a lot of anxiety. When I hit submit, I was terrified that all of these people were going to either say rude things to me or disappear out of my life or, you know, change their minds, even if it's someone I hadn't talked to in a long time. The idea of anybody thinking, you know, changing this idea of, you know, Katie was, you know, that, you know, nice girl from school and she, you know, got good grades and, you know, fun to hang out with and things like that. And I was just so afraid of all of that changing, but I felt like I needed to, it couldn't be a secret anymore. And I was very lucky in that I got, you know, tons of very positive responses. And I've gotten a lot of good responses from, you know, friends from high school and things on my blog as well. Um, so there's a lot of fear involved, but it not having it be a secret was huge for me in treatment as well. Um, yeah. It was just, it was the way that I, if other people could accept me, then I could accept myself. Um, so what kinds of things then did you work on with your therapist? Um, it, at first, um, at first I talked about just day-to-day -day stuff. Um, my, the first psychiatrist I had at Northwestern um, was not a good fit for me. Um, initially, he did not take me seriously because I do function so highly. He thought that I couldn't possibly have schizoaffective disorder and tried to treat me for um, bipolar disorder, which is not the same kind of thing. You know, he took me off of my antidepressants and things like that. And so um, it didn't go very well, um, but I kind of felt locked in a relationship. And unfortunately he, he also said all the things that I wanted to hear, you know, can I do this? Even though the medication, you know, label says you shouldn't. And he's, oh yeah, of course. Um, so it was hard to break, break that connection, that relationship, but, um, I always just kind of talked about what was going on today and what happened, you know, that week. And I got um, a new psychiatrist after, at, at the end of my senior year, when I finally couldn't take the other um, psychiatrists as, as anymore. And it started out the same way of, okay, here's what I did today. And this was stressful, but it really turned around within the last couple of years when we started tracing it back. Okay. I felt, you know, I had this symptom. Well, why did I have this symptom and what does it connect to in my past? And once we started working back towards talking about my childhood and things like that, um, that was where we started to see some, some really big progress kind of, of just recognizing 
not what immediately now is triggering it, but why is this happening? Why, why is this triggering me? What does this make me think of? And, and all of that. And so that's been extremely helpful. I mean, I still did fine with talking about, you know, an argument I got into with my roommate, but um, to really dig into the why um, has made a huge difference. Outside of the hallucinations, the delusions that people associate with schizoaffective disorders, there's a lot more that's going on uh, that are challenging. Uh, can you describe more about that? Yeah, so um, there, yeah, you're right. Everyone knows about the hallucinations and delusions and all of that, but um, the negative symptoms actually can be more impactful to me. Um, mm -hmm. I can operate while hallucinating, you know, things like that, the paranoia and delusions, um, I can kind of talk myself down a little bit easier, but with the negative symptoms, I, I have not figured out a way to make them stop. So if they're, you know, impeding things in my life, I kind of just have to write it out. And so some of the negative symptoms that I've experienced the most um, would be things like flat or blunted affect which is um, also very confusing, if not more so than having insight into hallucinations um, because it's where like you don't show the emotion outwardly. But the thing is, I still ex I feel it, but I don't experience it. So it's kind of like a logical, you know, I'm sad right now but you don't get that emotional response. You don't get the tears. You don't get anything uh, of this, you know, the, the feelings of when you're sad, the actual experience of being sad. It's just a very logical, I'm sad right now. And it's very confusing. Um, it's very unsettling to feel, as my doctor put it once, you can't feel your feelings. And it's just incredibly frustrating. Um, and like I said, it's one that I haven't figured out how to, make it stop. It hasn't lasted ever longer than, you know, maybe partway through the day, maybe an entire day, but I, I don't know how to control that one. And there's a, another symptom that I've only experienced a few times, but um, it's been um, impactful and it's more noticeable is um, where they call it um, allogia or poverty of speech. And so what happens is I just don't talk or I'll talk less, um, you know, maybe short answers to things. Um, and it's, it's interesting because it doesn't feel, you know, there's no delusion that, you know, there's something preventing me from speaking. I don't feel like my mouth is, you know, sealed shut or anything like that. I can, I'm very aware of the fact that I can talk. I just don't. It kind of feels like it doesn't, matter kind of like what's the point in talking but not necessarily in a negative way it's very um kind of aloof almost of feeling like oh well i'm just it's not worth it you know i'm not gonna talk why would i you know do that and it feels almost like like my you know loops and my teeth get heavy and so not so much that i couldn't open my mouth and talk but that it, it makes it feel like comfortable to be sitting in the silence. It's, it is almost kind of a nice feeling maybe of just feeling secure and in silence. And so that one's um, 
that one's tougher and that one can last anywhere from 30 minutes to the longest I've experienced that is about three days. Um, it okay. starts out with this difficulty of putting the sentences together um, and then it sort of evolves into like that's where I get quiet because I'm thinking about how do I take, you know, how do I frame what I'm going to say and put it together and it just mm. is instead of struggling with that it becomes kind of nice to just sort of sink into silence a little bit you also describe another symptom and that i read in your blog just recently about clinical perfectionism yeah so clinical perfectionism is a term that i only really learned recently um but it's something that i've been dealing with for many years now and i just didn't realize there was a name with for it. And honestly, it helped a lot to know that there was a name for it and that, you know, other people experienced this besides me. Um, because I've always been considered a perfectionist to some degree, you know, like I said, overachiever, good grades, works hard in school and all of that. Um, but somewhere along the line, it kind of changed. And I've always been afraid of failure, but this is a very intense fear. So I don't push myself to be the best because I want to be the best or I want to take pride in what I'm doing or feel successful because there isn't any of that. I will do, you know, I'll push myself to the limit just to avoid failure at, at any cost at all. It doesn't matter if there's some kind of repercussion. I will do whatever it takes to not fail. And it, it's just this burning, intense thing. And it develop so much anxiety, so much so that I'll procrastinate or I won't even start a project because I'm convinced that I will never do it perfectly. Um, you know, I set my standards at just ridiculous levels, which doesn't translate to other people. I never expect other people to reach these kinds of standards and things, not looking down on them, but I just, you know, it's, it's like, that's okay for other people, you know, and that's the same with like self-care and safe self-love. That's okay for other people, but I'm never, I'm not good enough. I'm never going to be good enough. I should do better. I should do better at this. I should have known better. Um, and even on the occasions that I do meet my standards, either I kind of reevaluate them and think, well, I didn't, I didn't set it high enough. I didn't actually do good. I could have done better. Or in the case of where it's with, you know, someone else, if I get praised for it, um, or it even happens with um, speaking for NAMI Chicago, um, I'll speak for an event or crisis intervention training for law enforcement. And, you know, I, I feel good when I get praise. But even then, within the next few days, I can convince myself that that was insincere. They were just saying it to make me feel better. They didn't really mean it. Mm -hmm. Or I took it as meaning, you know, more than it actually did. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of an all-consuming sort of thing. And it causes a lot of anxiety. Um, and it's something that I've struggled with a lot in my current position mm -hmm. um, as a legal assistant. Because, you know, we're you're on a deadline, things have to get done, they have to get done well, they have to get done perfectly. And so I have this just intense fear that I'm going to mess all of this up. And it's causing problems because I'm not as productive. Because, you know, I'll take a package that I have to send out, and I'll weigh it, and I'll write the weight down. 
and then I go to do, you know, postage online mm. and I have to go wait again just to check. And so it, it has really severely impacted my productivity, which is a problem in my job because everything moves so fast. With the post-traumatic stress disorder, um, I originally experienced it a little bit after high school during my senior year when I was, you know, so buried deeply in shame and, and stigma against myself. I became involved with someone who um, was very threatening. Um, I was never, you know, physically harmed, but there were threats and all sorts of things. And so that caused a little bit of PTSD that didn't really hit me for quite a while. It was after college. I remember moving out on my own um, after breaking up with my boyfriend. And that was kind of when it hit me, this feeling of being unsafe, even though I knew I was. Um, but I didn't really experience, like really fully have the immersive experience of PTSD until after, um, the relationship that followed, um, that one, I became involved with someone who was, um, emotionally and sexually abusive and, um, it was terrifying. Um, it was absolutely terrifying, but I didn't really let myself acknowledge that during the relationship. I would tell myself that, you know, everything's fine and this is how it's supposed to be and, and all of that. And I said, we were going to, you know, be a couple and get married and all of that. And so, you know, I said it, so I have to do it. Um, and then, um, finally, when I got out of it, um, I, made it a few, a couple of months, I think, before the first time I started having flashbacks. Um, and it's like, it feels like you're back there again. You see it so clearly. I have all the same emotions that I had in those moments. And, and the ones that I didn't let myself fear when I told myself, no, no, this is normal. You know, it doesn't mean anything. You know, I, I would force that, those fears and things like that to the side. And so it's all of that coming back and it's something too with um, sort of intrusive thoughts, memories pop into my head randomly. Um, you know, any little thing can make me think of him and it can trigger something. And so it's, mm -hmm. but it, it really evolved in ways that I didn't expect either. Um, like one of the things that gets me are um, people coming up right behind me. If I don't know someone's there, I <laughs> I almost fell out of my chair once at my last job. Um, and so there was never, I mean, there was never anything like that that happened. My ex never came up behind me and, you know, did anything like that or loud noises. I am the worst. Even when I know it's coming when we're watching TV, if there's a sudden noise, I mean, whatever is in my hands is in the air. And, um, and so it, it was confusing about like, why am I having these symptoms to things that have nothing to do with my trauma. There were no loud noises involved and things like that. So that was something that was really unexpected with PTSD for me. Um, but it's also been more, um, I don't know if dangerous is the right word, but there, there was a time recently where the PTSD was triggered very strongly. And um, I, took everyone's support and their questions and I turned it into negatives. So people would, you know, innocently ask, 
well, don't you think he's over you by now? Because it's been a few years. And that's a tough question for me to handle because it, it's sort of invalidating, even though I know they don't mean it as such, but then my brain would twist this around and say, they don't believe you. They think you're overreacting. You know, they, you know, think less of you or whatever. And so it got to a point where I was just absolutely emotionally charged and was having, you know, thoughts of things that I shouldn't think about and, and, you know, desires to do self-harm and things like that. And it hit me as strongly as some of the, um, emotional things that go along with the schizoaffective disorder. And that really caught me off guard. In March of 2020, you started not like the others. What prompted you to start a blog? And what were the fears and challenges for you? I had actually tried to start a blog twice before that and never got past the first. One of them, I didn't even get to the first post. And the other, I put up one post and then kind of abandon it. And some of that was the perfectionism of being like, if it's not perfect, I can't do it. But a lot of it was fear. There was just still that fear so strongly of what if, you know, people hate you, think less of you, all of that. And even though I've dealt with the shame a lot, you know, there's still a little bit of it left. That's like, well, maybe they're right. But mostly it's just that I don't want, I didn't feel strong enough to handle, um, any kind of backlash. Um, but it kind of came out of this need to continue teaching and, you know, spreading understanding and things like that, because I had been, um, I'd been speaking for classes at Northwestern and, um, you know, working with NAMI Chicago, but like, I wanted to do more every time someone would tell me that, you know, I changed their view or something. It was just this desire, you know, if I can change this person's mind, then maybe I can change another and another and another and just kind of create this world where it's okay to have serious mental illness. Um, because I think that's something that we're still missing. There's a lot of, you know, stigma fighting out there and all of that, but serious mental illness often isn't involved. And, you know, some of it may be because of stigma, but I think a lot of it is just because there's not that much representation. So I feel like because I'm able to talk about this and describe it, I need to take advantage of these skills and put it out there so that other people can learn because, you know, there's not, if there's no one there to teach them, then what, how are they going to learn? And I also feel very strongly that um, you won't, you'll understand it better if you talk to someone who's lived through it. Because, you know, before my diagnosis, I had actually been kind of interested in schizophrenia. Um, and so, you know, I took my psychology class in high school and, you know, did a little research on the internet. And I thought I had a good understanding of what schizophrenia was. And it wasn't until I experienced that I realized just how wrong that was. And so it is really feeling like, because I can describe my experiences and, and it changes people's minds, I need to take advantage of this and use this to, to really help people. So the blog kind of came out of a need to do more, more than just these speaking events. I need to reach a wider audience. I need to teach more people about what this is really, really like. Tell me about the effect that you have had and the feedback that you've received from, from people. It's been really, um, 
really, it's funny, it's inspiring me. Other people inspire me, not myself necessarily, but to see these people be open-minded and be interested. And I've gotten people, um, you know, who struggle with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder or anything like that, who tell me that they feel less alone because they hear me out talking about what I've been through. And then I have people um, tell me, you know, they just, they understand it better. I remember um, that recently I spoke um, for a mental health awareness training that was put on by the Kennedy Forum Illinois and NAMI Chicago. And there was a woman at the end after um, I spoke, they did you know their class and then I spoke at the end. And there was a woman who said that she had recently had a family member, I can't remember if it was a niece or a daughter who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and she was really scared of what that meant for her daughter, of what her daughter could do. Um, but that hearing, you know, my story and the fact that you can overcome that made her feel a lot better or probably the first one that really hit me the hardest was after my very first time speaking for crisis intervention training. Um, it was for sheriff uh, officers in our area. And afterwards there, you know, a few people hung around to talk to me. And there was one gentleman who, stayed the longest. And when everyone else went back in, he told me that his sister had been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder and she, you know, would call them, but he and his family just didn't get it. Cause she seemed, she seemed fine, you know, invisible illness didn't, they didn't get it, but that hearing me talk helped him understand what's going on underneath that. And he said he was going to go home and call his sister. And so it's, it's those people who, are so open to change that inspire me to keep going and keep teaching because it makes a difference. And and what does the blog actually do for you and your mental illness? The blog continues to be a way for me to accept myself, kind of to, if I can own this and talk about what I'm going through and be honest with other people, then I can be honest with myself. and. Um, you know, it, it feels good to have other people, you know, acknowledge me and recognize that I've been through, you know, quite a bit and things like that. But being able to be open about it and continue, because there's, I get nervous every time I post a new article. Sometimes it's the perfectionism because I, you know, it needs to be perfect. But a lot of the time it's, it's worrying about, you know, I still worry, what are people going to think? when I post this, if I talk about, you know, this deep thing that happened in therapy or this symptom that I have that seems totally outlandish or, or, you know, things like that. And so being able to take my thoughts and my experiences and put it down, you know, not on paper, but, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but in writing and, and really yeah. look at it and say, you know, I did go through a lot. I did make it through, you know, some very difficult times. I'm still doing it. And look, I did it in the past and I can keep doing it. I discovered that um, initially, I think um, the way I coped was not healthy. My, the reason I went to college, I guess, was because, um, you know, everyone, my parents, my doctors, you know, they said, take a gap year, you know, kind of. Get, get your stuff together and then go and it'll be more successful. And I said, no, I, I wasn't 
going to. And yeah. with that, it was because I knew myself enough to know that if I didn't go and I watched all of my friends go, that I would become very depressed and then either never go or feel bad about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of what really was pushing me also was this denial, this feeling like if I could outrun schizoaffective disorder, then everything would be fine. If I could just keep my life going like it was before and pretend you know, that nothing changed. Um, and so it, it did help me. Um, you know, it, it got me to college. It got me to fight for my grades and things, but it was definitely not healthy. Um, and I really kind of self-medicated with this competitiveness and this need to be the best. Um, Mm. but what has sort of motivated me since then, I guess, is this need to not give up. I made it this far. I have to keep going kind of, um, and, and really also just for, for other people, I need to keep teaching people. Um, and I need to keep changing people's minds because I don't want anyone else to have to feel the way that I did. So moving on from here, so you have, you have a successful blog, you've been written up in, uh, there's an article about you in Women's Health Magazine, uh, August 13th of 2020, uh, that explains your journey. What lies ahead for you? Hopefully more advocacy um, is my goal. I want to continue writing and speaking and really trying to, again, change as many people's minds as possible to create a world where, you know, people with serious mental illness aren't looked down upon and that are being helped and supported. Um, And outside of that, I'm not sure I've had, you know, thoughts about law school and things like that to get into mental health law. Um, But really, I think just my main goal is to just keep continuing with advocacy and changing the world, kind of, I guess that may sound a little bit dramatic, but, you know, creating a world where someone having symptoms is accepted. Yeah. I just think that you've done a wonderful job in creating that. You know, when I stumbled upon your blog, it's just a very vulnerable and very honest window into your life. Do you find that other people look at your success and all the things that you do and say, I can't do that? Not as much. Um, It was something I feared. I always worry that people are going to see me as the exception to the rule. Right. Um, but I'm not special. There's nothing, mm-hmm. you know, innately in me that keeps me from, you know, falling into deeper and deeper symptoms. I got very lucky with my treatment. Being treated right away is very mm-hmm. key for most mental health conditions. Um, and so I, it was kind of a, an accident. I was already in treatment. And so we just continued mm-hmm. So I was very lucky with that. I've been very lucky that medication works for me. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is a concern of mine that people, um, particularly people who don't have um, serious mental health conditions, that they'll look at me in one way and look at other people in a different light. Um, But in terms of people, other people who who struggle like I have, 
um, most of what I've come into contact with is people, you know, who, who say it gives them hope. And, you yeah. know, I hope that's the case. Cause like I said, I'm, I'm not special. I'm lucky and, and I'm open. <laughs> I think that's something, um, that I've been thinking a lot about recently, how, you know, we've done a great deal of stigma fighting. There's so many organizations, there's people out there talking about it, but I think you're right. There is this, this separation between it's okay to have this, but I don't want to see it when people see the symptoms, it can make them uncomfortable. And it's something that I've really worked hard to hide because I don't want people to change, you know, how they feel about me, but it's getting to the point where, you know, it's like, I don't care. This is what's going on. You know, this is what's happening. And you, if it's okay to have the diagnosis, then it should be okay to experience the diagnosis. And, um, it's just, I think seeing mental illness or the results of mental illness, you know, seeing someone scars or, you know, seeing someone talking to themselves or whatever, Mm -hmm. it makes people really uncomfortable. And I think that's what, you know, we need to accept that Mm -hmm. along with these diagnoses come these symptoms and Mm -hmm. you have to be okay with both. You can't, you know, claim that you're not, you know, that you support people with serious mental illness and then, treat them differently when, when you see it. I think, um, people expect it to be invisible. And I think something that happens too sometimes is that people take it personally. You know, if you are confused, if you're saying things you don't mean, if you're, you know, not showing emotion when you should be, I think a lot of people really take it personally when it has nothing to do with them. Mm. Um, but there is, yeah, a lot of people who, I think the majority of people, honestly, mm-hmm. who are only okay with it if they don't see it. And if you're stable at some point, then they expect you to be stable all the time. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, do you want to bring in uh, James? Sure. Okay, cool. Hey, James. Hey. How's it going? Good. How about you? Good, good, good. Yeah, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Uh, let's move into like uh, the support that you provide. How that changes the dynamic in your relationship, if it does at all. Um, I mean, for the most part, she's pretty self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you know, I'm here for you know helping with checking things out. You know, um, one of the things is making sure something's real. Um, or if something's not actually there, um, you know, a lot of it is just like, what, a couple nights ago or whatever it was, you know, somebody might be in the office and, you know, go in the office with the dog and the dog actually kind of freaked out a little bit when he walked in the office. I'm like, that's not very good. (laughs) It's a little concerning. (laughs) You know, walk in, like, nothing here. Um, yeah <laughs> so you know that's one of the things that I, i'll do and then you know emotional support um i mean a lot of that is something you would find in a normal well yeah normal yeah relationship um but i guess it's a little more amplified i think one of the biggest things is that um he will listen without judgment i mm-hmm. can tell him 
anything and he will take it very calmly even if I'm feeling frantic and oh my you know oh my god these things are happening he's always very calm he doesn't over he doesn't overreact to things um he's very understanding and even when he doesn't understand he can still be there and be comforting and I think for a lot of people if they don't understand they get very uncomfortable and don't know what to do and even when James doesn't know what to do you know he's still there ready waiting you know whatever I come up with that I need he's willing to help out well, one quality I heard James is is that yeah you you sit there and you listen non-judgmentally right but another good quality I hear is that you're not reactive you're calm yeah yeah uh, my yeah. the um the ex who's responsible for my PTSD, um, mm. he was very reactive. And so I felt very mm. alone when I, you know, right. come to him with this situation or, you know, when I'm feeling or things like that. And he would either respond negatively or, you know, not want to deal with it because he's dealing with his own stuff. And, mm. and so I did, I felt, I felt very much alone and so to have James who would just always be right there and he's always willing to you know reality check with me or things like that um just having someone present makes a huge difference I think a lot of people get into relationships with people who have you know mental health issues and everything and they don't really like they think it's everything's going to be the same and you know, a lot of it is the same, but there are some things where, you know, it's different. You need to be ready for it and or at least just be willing to change with it. Yeah. And I think yeah. also educating yourself too. That was something that, you know, once James, you know, got to know me a little bit, he wanted to know more about schizophrenia too, so that he mm. could better support me. And I think it's important for someone who's in a relationship with someone with mental illness to kind of educate themselves about what you know your partner is going through yeah no great thank you so much guys um thank you pleasure yeah i really think that this has been very informative very helpful for the other people and katie i just uh really happy that there are people like you that have the courage to go out and and advocate for other people, advocate for yourself. It's a tremendous thing that you're doing. So thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. All right. Y'all take care. You too.